Welcome to Pat and Rod Save the World. I'm Roderick Makem. And I'm Pat Brown. It's the weekending, the 29th of November, 2014. <laughs> it and certainly is. We're going to start with... Uh, Had a bit, of, uh, a bit of feedback from last week's podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we put the question out there about a possible name change to, uh, to Killing Stupid. Um, but uh, a listener, a friend of mine up in Singapore, Lydia Vasco, uh, she was pretty sure that Pat and Rod Save the World was a good option, and, uh, and so we might stick with it for the time being. And she also had some, uh, some interesting feedback uh, about one of the topics we discussed last week uh, on the fake shake. Again, not going to try and pronounce it. Uh, news, uh, news Limited journalist in the UK. Um, and... Uh, I was really trying to make the, uh, the distinction between this guy and what he was doing and uh, other forms of, you say, gonzo journalism, uh, where they sort of create a story as well, in a sense. Um, and I don't think I did it particularly well. Lydia made, um, uh, crystallised it down really well, and it came down to the issue of uh, manipulation, uh, which is what this guy was doing, manipulation of facts, manipulation of people, uh, manipulation of circumstances to... Uh, completely artificially create a story where otherwise none would have existed. Um, and she had a great um, uh, description of him uh, as a newspaper-backed con man, uh, which I think just summed it up really well. So thank you, Lydia. Thanks, Lydia. I agreed entirely with your analysis of it, and I really liked that one-liner. <laughs> so the first topic today... Um, the three topics we're going to cover yes. this podcast. The first is an interesting lunar mission that's being um, funded through Kickstarter yeah. at the moment. Um, the second topic we're going to deal with is the uh, Ferguson incident and the fact that uh, the police officer involved in that, in the killing of a young black man, has not been indicted by the grand jury in Missouri. And the third topic we're going to cover are foreign fighters in the Middle East. And no, we're not talking about um, people who join ISIS or ISIL. We're yeah. talking about people who are actually joining the other side. So that's an interesting phenomenon that we think is worthy of discussion. So, so. Um, the first topic. Now, we're going to put a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes. And what uh, I think is a good way to start this out is essentially to describe what's called Lunar Mission 1 and what they plan to do. So, in a nutshell, what they would like to do is to send a lunar probe to the South Pole of the Moon. And the uh, purpose of this probe will be to drill down into the lunar rock at least 20 metres, which is about 10 times further than anyone has ever drilled. And they're going to try for a depth of 100, but at least 20 is the goal. Yeah. The idea is then that they can analyse the rock and that will allow us to understand better than ever before, quote, the geological composition of the moon, the relationship it shares with our planet and the effects of the late heavy bombardment period on the inner solar system. And what they're talking about with the heavy bombardment period are asteroid impacts on the moon's surface. So the, uh, the Kickstarter link to this, which is, uh, which is an interesting one, and how they're trying to convince people to give them their money for this, um, 
for this you know scientific mission um, is uh, basically saying they're going to create uh, in a sense a um, well a virtual time capsule I suppose you'd call it yes um, uh, preserving you know sending up data you can send up you know photos or uh, a sound clip or um, you know video even. video even um, uh, and um, and you know uh, pay a certain amount of money at the moment they're saying you know for 60 pounds that's a UK thing obviously um, you can uh, you can reserve yourself some some digital space to uh, to go in this time capsule that they will sort of leave up on their on the moon um, they'll drop it into the hole yeah. that they drill so the idea is they finish drilling they finish uh, analyzing the rock samples with the instruments on the probe and then they just drop this capsule in and they say that the excellent conditions on the lunar surface will preserve the capsule for something approaching a billion, yes, with a B, years. And that appeals to me. I, um, I've always wanted to go to the moon. Uh, and since I actually won't be able to, the idea that my voice could, uh, I, um, yes, I, I really like that idea. I do have my uh, doubts over their, um, over their payment structures and how they're actually going to manage this. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So the Kickstarter page makes it clear that this is not actually going to fund the entire mission. Yeah. And they're very light on the details about how they're actually going to fund the mission. Yeah, they're saying that they want, uh, what is it, uh, £600,000 um, yeah. from this Kickstarter thing, which uh, very obviously is... Uh, is not going to get a drilling probe up to the lunar surface. Um, and can we just say, as of today, there are 4,620 backers and they've raised £382,000. Yeah. And they still have 18 days to go. So it seems actually almost a foregone conclusion that they'll, they'll end up yeah, making Yeah, that they'll this. get this stage done pretty well. But in terms of stages one and... Uh, sorry, stages two and three, uh, which is where they're going to... Um, Need to uh, to up that funding from you know the hundreds of thousands to the hundreds of millions. Um, hundreds of millions, doubt it. No, I mean to get a lunar probe to the moon and drill. Well, we were just talking about the comet, um, yeah. and we're talking about the Indians who managed to get something to Mars with seventy million. Of course, it didn't land. Um, I'm not sure whether or not hundreds of millions. I, I actually, well, I mean, they're, they're saying that they'd like a um, projected revenue under their very tenuous. Uh, stages two and three of three billion pounds. Holy moly! Yeah. Where do they say that? Uh, right, right down the bottom. Absolutely last thing they mention. I guess they were hoping people wouldn't like get to it. Yes. So <laughs> this is actually what Rod and I were, you know, enthusiastic about this idea. Yeah. And considering putting a bit of money into it, if only to put Pat and Rod save the world, our podcast up into this digital locker, we thought that would be cool. I thought it was a great idea. So, so we, we were thinking, you know, just reserve ourselves some space there with the, you know, 60 pounds between us. That's it. And we um, did a little bit of reading. Yeah. Um, now, what it turns out is the case is that this is merely, you're basically, with the Kickstarter campaign currently, you're buying a right, if the project ever ends up happening, to have a digital locker. And the amount of money that you contribute now will proportionally buy you space. The more that you contribute, the more space that you will get. They don't know how much space you're going to end up getting, though. Yeah. And what they're actually basing the entire thing on is that they will continue after the Kickstarter campaign to sell space and that they will then, quote, 
The third phase will be a main global sales and marketing campaign organized by a major consumer company with sales under franchise management. This will broaden out the appeal, availability and accessibility of the project, end quote. And what they also say right down the bottom is that they've done market research in the UK and the USA. And they say there's strong interest in these digital memory boxes, which is a reasonable finding. Yeah. But here's the leap. Quote, based on the findings, we are able to predict around 15% of the global population would be able to afford the product and about 1% of that group will purchase a digital memory box, end quote. Yeah, and I, I have my doubts about those figures, uh, particularly where they pluck the one that, um, you know, 1% out of that 15 will uh, will purchase it. I mean, yeah, I also there's no indication anywhere on the website where they're getting these, uh, these figures from. No, there's not. And they'll keep, um, I doubt that they will release no. that report and the information and, and assumptions underlying it, uh, I suppose it's not in their interest. So while I admire the... Um, I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, it's really inventive. I don't know if they're going to make the money. And you're right. They say that they, they need around $4.7 which I presume means that they're going to have to spend in the billions to make the thing actually happen. Mm. So this is, I think... It's a super interesting example of a creative way to facilitate space exploration using non-public means. Yeah. Or kind of private-public means, really. Yeah. And I don't think we've got a... Uh, I, I, it's, uh, it's starting to get there, but I don't think we've actually got a workable model of it yet. If this is, you know, an example of uh, an, an, early, uh, an early instance of people trying to... to privately fund mm. space exploration and studies, mm. Mm. Uh, I think they've got a ways to go before they, they've really convinced me. You haven't had a look at the Mars One stuff, have you? No, I haven't had a chance, no. Uh, well, just quickly, um, since we're, we're talking about it, we don't go into too much detail about it. Um, but another example is um, is the, the Mars One project. Uh, and it's, uh, it's quite ambitious. They're looking for establishing a permanent human settlement on Mars. Um, with a crew of four people departing uh, in 2024 and an unmanned mission launching in 2018. I don't think they're going to make it under that particular time. What's their revenue model? Uh, their revenue model is the donations. Um, and uh, uh, most of the... I, I'm just looking at a little pie graph here right. of where their money's going from the donations they've received. 78% of it so far has gone on concept design studies. Considering we're almost at 2015 and they wanted to send up an unmanned mission to uh, get things prepared in 2018, you, you kind of would want them to be a little bit further along than concept design studies, I'd have thought. Um, mm. I don't... About, you know, it's a complex caper. <laughs> Flying people to fucking Mars is... Hard. Yeah. I, I forgive them a little bit of concept design phase. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, the, uh, there are other uh, things that money's been going on from their donations. Um, uh, travel expenses, yeah. uh, legal expenses, website maintenance, communications, office and other, uh, making up the other 22% or those things combined. So very little in the way of uh, actual hardware or... Um, 
Here's, do you know what though? I'm going to just go out on a limb yes. and say that the joker that these guys have in their back pocket yeah. is that accomplishing these kinds of technical feats is becoming incredibly cheap as compared to how it was even 10 years ago. Yeah. So they've got some very long timelines on this and I think that partially what they'll be relying on are the costs dropping even further? Well, that's the thing with these guys is how short their timeline is. Yeah. Like if they're saying, yeah. 2018 is adventurous. For, a, for an unmanned mission. Um, and they're talking about, you know, robots preparing like a base. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the first, uh, first human flight up there in 2024, followed by another, you know, more human flights each two years after that. I think where they've um, got it wrong is they're running it purely off donations. Yeah. I don't think I, there might be something else to it, but just oh, yeah, yeah um, but just from you know a glance at their donation website, it looks like that's what. Um, yeah, well, certainly front but, and center yeah. of the lunar mission campaign is this idea of a digital locker, yeah. and this is the next thing that I wanted to discuss because I find this fascinating. Yeah, that we're moving into a time when Western governments are under a great deal of financial pressure with aging populations and the like. And so space exploration seems to be, as a publicly funded enterprise, uh, a thing of the past. And so the only way to do it is with this distributed funding. I'm actually in agreement with them that if you want to get something like this done, you're going to need, um, you're going to need funds from large numbers of people facilitated by a platform like Kickstarter. The interesting thing about it is, though, that with the scientific endeavour, you need to shoehorn in some kind of consumer product. And this is a fascinating thing. And I think that they've actually done it quite cleverly in the sense that the whole and dropping the digital locker in is really, it's a byproduct of exactly what they want to do scientifically. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a great... Uh... A great model, uh, but I think that it, both these examples, uh, they need some serious tweaking on it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't, uh, as in, clearly people are looking, are still handing out money without much in the way of details on how things are actually going to work. Mm. Um, but for me, I'd actually want to know for sure. Um, well, there seems to be no cost to just waiting and seeing. Yeah. That's the reality of it. When you drill down into the detail, which we have as savvy consumers, it makes a lot of sense just to hang out until they do the mass marketing campaign. Yeah. Um, Where they're going to be selling the exact same thing that they're selling in the Kickstarter, and that's digital space for you to send one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at that juncture, I actually would expect that it's probably cheaper as well. Um, so, you know, there's the brute force of the market at play. <laughs> but I, I think that their basic idea of creating a, a complementary consumer product along with the scientific project is the way to go. And perhaps, I don't know if they did this with the Mars mission, a great way to do that would, to be, would be, okay, if you guys out there want to apply to be the person in the manned mission, why don't you pay to apply? Yeah. I mean, I assume they've done that. What can you think of any other ways that um, they'd be able to create consumer products alongside, <laughs> like scientific endeavors? Because uh, the interesting thing about this is you're not really getting much. It's sentimental. It's yeah. like a very abstract thing that you're purchasing, and I think it's cool. Don't get me wrong, but you're not getting much in the way of tangible value. 
You're not. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, when you come to things like space exploration, you're never going to get much in the way of tangible value. Like, what, uh, what could they really offer you? Well, but here's my question. Is this a sustainable model? Or do these guys get first mover advantage where the novelty of, of a space your, yeah. yeah, is something that they can sell? And is Space Pro 2 going to be able to actually sell that for the amount actually, of money yeah, no, required? That's, yeah, that's a, good, uh, that's a good question. And um, uh, possibly not. Um, although possibly not. You look at the way that people... Like, it was a world event when the first man walked on the moon. Yeah. And then after that, it kind of got routine and people lost interest. So... In matters of space exploration, it seems to me that there's a lot of publicity that comes along with being the first person to do something, and uh, there is a real drop-off after that. And so I'm not sure that this idea of like selling something that's purely sentimental yeah. makes any sense. And I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it might not be a lunar probe or something, but if, uh, uh, what's the... Uh uh, the thing we sent out, uh, what was it, in the 80s or 70s? That Voyager. What you just out there exploring. You know, if yeah. there was something like that uh, and they were crowdfunding that today, they would probably, again, let you send your data into the deepest depths of space. Um, That's a cool idea. Yeah, and, you know, people, I can see people doing that in the vague hope that uh, it'll, it'll find some alien civilization and you'll be, you'll be, uh, you'll be heard by someone uh, on the other end of the universe. But I, I just had a crazy fucking idea. What's that? Okay. Um, so Voyager. Yes. Okay. Here, here's an idea. Here's tangible value yeah. of a sort, perhaps. If you said, all right, give us money, contribute to a space probe that we're going to send into deep space, and that space probe will have instructions on it that will explicitly ask for an alien civilization to clone you from the hair sample <laughs> or the uh, um, digitized genome that you provide us. Would you pay? I'd pay a bit of money for the chance <laughs> just, of just on the off cloning chance. resurrection. <laughs> I mean, that's a really... I'm like assuming the alien civilization who finds it has cloning capability. Assuming that. Yes. But, I mean, you're already making grand assumptions anyway, so what's another one? Like, I think uh, I, I would probably do it just for the hell of it. I would like, probably contribute to that. I don't know how much that's worth yeah, to me. Yeah, like, I wouldn't... Uh, I don't think I'd put in any more than, say, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, because it is such a long shot. I'm not going to put my life savings into that by any stretch I'm not of putting my life savings into it. But here's the... But this is the interesting thing about that idea. Yeah. It's possible tangible value. And I think that probably the next step here is rather than having certain sentimental value, albeit with the risk of the mission failing, that the idea of possible tangible value is probably the way of the future for this kind of thing. That's Pat Brown's thesis (laughs) on crowdfunding space exploration. And where I think it gets really interesting is when you start to do really wild things out in space, there is tremendous potential for scientific advancement. And I actually think that an intelligent way to do this could be to allow people to have shares in a company that's licensed to sell and collect royalties for any patent or scientific advancement that comes out of the process of sending. Just had a thought about, uh, just linked to that. 
I think Mars One's uh, time frame is uh, is pretty unrealistic. I don't think they're going to make it. But I think, say, in 40, 50 years' time, mm. uh, when there are probably some more serious discussions about uh, colonization of Mars, mm. um, and they're sending up unmanned missions um, to do whatever they have to do to try and make it more fit for human ha- habitation. If they were crowdfunding that, and for, say... 10,000 bucks, you could um, buy a parcel of land on Mars or rights to uh, mineral rights for mining or something on Mars. Holy fuck. Holy shit, people would do it. For their children, they yeah, would do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. So the idea of privatising this and really getting profit incentive into it, I don't think is too far a shot. And... It makes sense to me that, I mean, certainly the idea of buying a patch of Mars, pretty fucking interesting idea. Yeah. And second of all, um, the idea of uh, commercialising inventions that result from any of these projects, you know, it's that's touch and go. But hell, Teflon was invented out of the initial space program. Yeah. And I would like to own shares in the corporation that owns the rights to Teflon. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> lucrative thing to have a shareholding in. So maybe there are ways to do this that are a bit more um, complex, but perhaps fit a little better with the capitalist system that we're running. Not that I'm a fan of that in all things. I just don't see an alternative when it comes to space exploration. Yeah. Anyway. Next topic. Next topic, Ferguson. Ferguson. Now, you're the man with the facts on this, I'd say. Uh, You've uh, read about it more than I have. Um, So, uh, you know, obviously uh, earlier this year, uh, a 18-year-old black man, unarmed, was shot and killed by a white uh, police officer. That's uh, in a nutshell. What happened after that was uh, a lot of anger in the streets. It started with uh, people protesting then there was the highly militarized uh, police presence and it ended up sparking into riots and then died down for a while. Over the past week or so, we've had the, um, well, the riots start again. And this time it's over the decision by the grand jury uh, saying that the officer has uh, basically no case to answer, no, no charges arising out of this and uh, it will not go to trial. Having had a look at the evidence and they released, you know, what the grand jury was looking at, I actually think it would be um, probably, you know, unlikely that had it gone to trial that the guy would have been found guilty. I can certainly see this guy being found innocent in a trial. Where I think that people still have a right to be angry, maybe not to the point of, you know, the, the rioting and looting that's going on, but still definite uh, grounds to be angry and disgusted, is the fact that it never got a chance to go to trial in the first place. Mm. So, um, I think there are a number of interesting things about this. Yeah. Let's get the killing stupid part out of the way. Yeah. To release the information that they're not going to indict the officer at 8 p.m., yeah, he's really fucking dumb. When they had that, they had that uh, information to hand. What was it, like four or five hours beforehand? I actually don't know about that. No, I I, I remember seeing it, um, and everyone was just going nuts about it on Twitter. Like, why, why they were, and then, so like after a couple of hours, they had a 
press release with with the mayor and someone else just saying, well, we don't know what the prosecutors are going to say, but I think everyone just needs to be prepared. Um, and then, you know, another hour or so after that, he finally comes out. But the, the grand jury delivered their decision mm. and it was several hours after, like definitely still in normal daylight hours. Yeah. Um, I mean, my view is if they didn't have the infrastructure in place or whatever PR bits and pieces they needed it to do before they released the information, that it made a lot of sense to delay it until the next morning. Yeah. When there weren't crowds of people gathered <laughs> at night, which... When you drop bad news into an environment like that, is much more likely to cause riots than dropping the news early in the morning so that people wake up with it on their radio, getting out of bed, yeah. and they're not in a crowd ready to fucking burn shit. Yeah, it, it, I was just looking at it going, what are you people doing? Are you, are you trying to start a riot? Yeah. I mean, it was very ineptly handled. Yeah. And there's really, I think we're both in agreement here. There's absolutely no excuse for the writing. Yeah. It's a stupid, self-defeating way for a community to respond to something that they're not happy about. Yeah, like, like I was saying, I think every uh, every excuse and reason to still be very angry about the fact that this hasn't even gone to trial. And there were some statistics in a uh, in a Washington Post article that we both read. Um, Which I will include, yeah. by the way, in the show notes because um, it's a fantastic graphic. Yeah. And it's not strictly analogous because it's talking about, you know, federal grand jury indictments. True. Um, but what was it? Something like uh, 160,000 um, uh, cases and 11 of them not being, not, you know, proceeding through the trial? Um, yes. 162,300. Yeah. And 11 times not going into trial. Yeah. So it really is, uh, as much as something can be a formality in a, in a court of law, it's a formality. Seems and to so, be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, this, quite frankly, it should have gone to trial. Every chance at that trial that uh, Darren Wilson, the officer, would have been found innocent. Mm. There were so many inconsistencies with various witness reports. Um, there was pieces of, you know, physical evidence such as... Um, uh, Mike Brown's DNA on the gun, and again, different accounts of how that might have happened. Um, but uh, I can certainly see in an, uh, in a court of law a possibility of him, a strong possibility of being found innocent. The fact that it didn't get to uh, get to that chance for all the evidence to be tested and mm. witnesses to be cross-examined for a, a jury to hear is absolutely ridiculous. So I actually think that this brings us to the critical issue here, uh, which is. Not so much what happened, because yeah. there's so much in the way of conflicting testimony, it's impossible to tell, um, although there are certain conclusions that I do think we can draw, which yeah. we'll talk about later. But the process here, which was essentially run by the prosecutor, and there are intelligent people, one of which, um, Emily Bazelon, who formerly wrote for Slate, and now I believe is writing for the New York Times, yeah. who has read 2,000 of the 4,000 pages of transcripts and she's legally qualified and in her view basically you've got a prosecutor who's doing everything he can to steer the process away from indictment um, and there are other people who I similarly respect the opinion of hmm. who, who've said the same thing Yeah. so I think what you've got here is there hasn't even been a chance for there to be a miscarriage of justice yeah. in the sense that the miscarriage here is that they didn't even get to run the trial. Yeah. Um, and so I agree with you 
100% on that. It seems more and more as I hear different commentators who know more about this come up with their opinions that this really should have gone to trial. The man should have had his day in court. Um, that said, to get to the facts of the case, yeah. um, this is something that I'll be upfront about that I'm not familiar with the details of. But insofar as there, it seems certain that there was a scuffle at the car. Yeah, that's backed up by both. Uh, I mean, both the uh, both the testimonies that the grand jury heard, which I've had a look at, um, not in you know absolute minute detail, but had a, a relatively close look at, um, are the testimonies of uh, Darren Wilson, the police officer, mm-hmm. and of uh, Mike Brown's friend. Uh, Dorian Johnson, who was walking, walking along with him. With him. Yeah. Those were the two people who were closest to the event, and in um, uh, in many respects, their um, uh, their testimonies match. Obviously, both putting their own spin on what was happening. Mm. Um, but yeah, there was a scuffle at the car after uh, the officer told them to get off the street yeah. and walk on the sidewalk. And yeah. it's also worth mentioning that Michael Brown had just minutes before been involved in a theft yeah. from a convenience store. Yeah, um, stole some uh, some cigarettes that they were going to uh, smoke weed with. Yeah, which um, there's videotape of, yeah. so that's beyond doubt. And uh, and Johnson says that as well. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, we he, he says that they went to the shop and he was going to buy them when, uh, when his friend just lunged over and stole them. Uh, and he was very worried about that because he thought that shop had a video camera and he was asking him, what the hell are you doing? Mm. Take that with a grain of salt. He may have just been trying to place himself in a paint himself in a good light. Um, so walking down the street following this robbery, um, and uh, a police officer drives up behind them, tells them to get along, uh, get off the road, walk on the sidewalk. Uh, Johnson, the friend, uh, says that they, you know, they're almost home, and uh, and at this point, um, uh, their testimonies match pretty pretty much identically. Uh, this is where they start to diverge um, in that uh, the police, uh, Wilson's testimony is that um, uh, is that Brown was immediately very, uh, very aggressive um, and, uh, and abusive towards him. Um, whereas uh, Johnson remembers it slightly differently that the police officer started to drive off again, then slammed on the brakes. Uh, flung open his door and hit Brown in the side and that's where the scuffle started. Yeah. Um, uh, Wilson's testimony is more to the effect that, um, uh, that you know, Brown started reaching into the car and, you know, tr- punching him in the face and trying to grab his gun. So the interesting thing about this is when you consider how the altercation began, yeah. it actually speaks more about the character of the people involved and their likelihood of, doing one or the other thing at the critical moment where the shooting took place later on, then it has bearing on the guilt for the unlawful killing because the altercation moved on from that part um, to essentially the two young fellows making a break for it after there'd been some kind of struggle at the window of the car during which shots were fired. Yeah. And, um, you know, in terms of, uh, I mean, one of the strongest pieces of evidence for um, uh, the police officer's side of things is the, the DNA on the gun. Um, the DNA on the gun. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, even on that, 
if the uh, if the police officer has pulled a gun on the uh, on the guy while they're scuffling in the you know, scuffling in the car, I could certainly see him grabbing the gun himself and trying to push it away from him and leaving DNA on it that side, rather than the police officer's thing that he reached over him and tried to yank the gun out of his holster of his own accord. Um, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Um, that's actually not something that I'd considered. Because I, yeah, perhaps I placed in my own mind on this too much emphasis on the DNA on the gun. Because uh, that's a natural reaction, I suppose, yeah. is to, like, sort of try and swap the thing if it's being pointed at you at very, very close range. Um so the at, at that point, I suppose, shots were fired. Both kids took off. And then there were more shots fired yeah. as they as ran the, away. Yes. And then uh, I think, you know, one of probably the most uh, important uh, divergences of their testimony is what happened after that, which is uh, when Brown died. Um, Wilson's testimony is that Brown turned around and charged him, basically. Mm-hmm. While reaching for his waistband, not sure why he'd be doing that since he didn't have a gun, um, and uh, and fearing for his life, uh, Wilson shot him dead. Mm-hmm. Um, Johnson's testimony is that after they'd been trying to get away, um, and shots still being fired at them, uh, Brown turned around to shout out that he was unarmed. He was unarmed. At which point he was shot dead. Yes. And there's a lot of conflicting testimony yeah. on whether or not Brown charged Wilson um, at the point where he turned around. Yeah. So I actually think that it's worth making the point here that under the rules of engagement for cops um, in the United States, they are able to shoot after someone who's running away from the scene of the crime. That is not the case in this country. Yeah, I didn't think it was. No. And I think that it's the wrong thing for police to have the ability to shoot at someone when they're trying to get away from the scene. Um, and unless that person has demonstrated that they actually are in possession of a weapon yeah. and that they intend to use it maliciously, I really don't see the justification for shooting at a guy after you've been in fisticuffs with yeah. him. Oh, I don't think that's good enough. Like if you've just come across a guy uh, slitting someone's throat in the street sure and they run, yeah. fire away. Uh-huh. It's a different. It's a very different thing to getting into an altercation with a guy and then shooting at him as he runs away from it. Yeah, I personally don't think that it's worth the loss of life for that. I mean, well, in my mind, it's clearly not the right thing to do. So that aside, because that is apparently allowed, uh, as far as the American cops are concerned. Yeah. This idea of whether or not he was charged by Brown. Yeah, I'm just uh, trying to find it here. It was a. Um... It was an article uh, on Vox.com, which was setting up, um, you know, the key points of both these testimonies side by side and comparing and contrasting them. And I'm just trying to find the bit where they talk about the distances. Uh, yeah, so involved. the distances are problematic. Yeah. But more uh, problematic is the fact that the testimony from witnesses, many of whom are black, by the yeah. way, does conflict. There are black witnesses who say that Brown did charge the bloke, but the distances don't add up. Yeah. Um, at, uh, so just very roughly, um, because I can't find where in this article it mentioned it, it's a very long one. Um, but, uh, Wilson's testimony was that it was, it was, uh, that, uh, Brown got about, uh, 20 to 30 feet away, then turned around and charged him. Mm. Um, whereas 
the physical evidence was, and this blood was, spatter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where the body was. Oh uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, incontrovertible. There was something more like 150 feet. Yeah. Um, and I just, I can't see that it's likely or probable that a guy would get that far away from the scuffle at the car. Because, I mean, 150 feet is not a short distance. No, it's not. It's yeah. 50 metres. Yeah. yeah. He's got that far away and then turns around and runs back at him. I, I, think, I, I think that's super unlikely. Yeah, it is pretty unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Look, Which isn't to say it didn't happen. Like, it, like, unlikely things do happen. We weren't there. But, again, it, this is something that should have been a matter to, to be examined by a judge and jury in a full trial. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that much I agree with. I think that the guy should have been indicted um, and that it's a travesty that the prosecutor seems to have put his thumb on the scales because this is kind of the hack in the system here is that it's the prosecutor's responsibility to get through the grand jury process. But in this case, when the person who is potentially being indicted is actually a policeman, you have a very close relationship, obviously, between prosecutors and policemen. Yeah. And so there's this inherent conflict of interest here where it's apparently the prosecutor's job to advocate for the charging of the policeman or the, the indictment of the policeman. But he has every incentive and, and personal relationship weighing against that role. Uh, and from what respectable experts have said about this process, it seems that that conflict did actually have a huge influence on whether or not this guy got indicted, and that's wrong. Yeah, and uh, and I think you know that's to to a large extent what people are, are most angry about in the states. Obviously, I can't speak for them, but it's I think it is not so much that uh, that this guy who let's face it he did just uh, he did just you know stand over a, a harmless little shopkeeper and steal merchandise. Yeah, and that's like he's how not it the looks. most he's not the most sympathetic character. No. Um, uh, but it, you know, the broader issue of, um, uh, well, of, of young black men being uh, shot and killed by police officers and police officers not being charged, or by security guards, or by vigilantes mm. and that sort of thing. Um, uh, I think that's where where the anger is coming from. I think that there would have been much better examples uh, that um, people could be. Uh, angry about and rioting over mm. than uh, than this particular one where there, you know, uh, there is evidence that um, that this guy was uh, scuffling, if not outright assaulting the police officer. So uh, yeah, that's the interesting thing about it is the fact that this is the case that's drawn all yeah. the attention, and there are many, 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 many more young black men where who were obviously shot dead, not for the right reason. Yeah, and it strikes me as a strange thing that they are not the the cause celebrity yeah, the, for this kind of thing. You know, thing. the spark for this sort of outrage. It's, it, 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 it's odd to me that this is the one that's done it. Well, but here's my view on why this is the one that did it. Yeah. It's because there was a huge community response. Yeah. And, and I think that that's really what drew the attention of the media. Yeah. So You're right, actually. The but strange thing here is, though, that it really is an incentive to riot, basically, um, if... You're Although remember that it didn't it didn't start with riots when he was first killed, there was at least uh, uh, a day or two mm. where it was it was a lot of community um, 
outrage, but it was peaceful protests. You yes. didn't start seeing, you know, looting or smashing of buildings or anything like that uh, until I think a couple of days into it. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. And was that in part in response to the heavy police? I would I would argue it was. Yeah, right. And so, I mean, my opinion on this is that while this isn't a very sympathetic character, the police really did not cover themselves with glory in the way that they dealt with protests. Yeah. Completely militarised. Absolutely over the top, sniper rifles, the whole bit. And, you know, you can go back and look at the news coverage for that time. But I think what really happened here is that, you know, a fairly unsympathetic character who may or may not be indicative of a legitimate grievance that the black community has, has kind of become a symbol that uh, he's a flawed symbol for that for that cause yeah i think a far better example would have been the uh the shooting of tamir rice this week yeah uh who was a just very briefly on the facts um because we're we've already spoken about this for a while now yeah um but uh, a 12 year old boy who was playing with a bb gun uh on his own in a park um and there's some cctv footage from across uh, the other side um looking and he's you know just playing by himself in the park after a while he goes and sits down uh, at a gazebo um, and then uh, after about seven minutes, a police car screams up onto the grass um, and before has even stopped moving, um, uh, the uh, passenger in the police car is opening his door and shooting the kid dead. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think that is a far... Uh, I think to be honest, is a far more sympathetic um, yeah. uh, character, I suppose. Not least of all yeah. because it's a kid. Yeah. But who was clearly just doing nothing wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a complex issue. And, I mean, the complexity of it is really that the biggest problem. As Mayor Giuliani pointed out in a controversial interview uh, during the week, um, in, albeit in a completely arsehole-ish fashion, that the most dangerous people to black people are black people. Um, And the figures back him up on that. Yeah, I mean, 93% of black deaths are caused by other black guys, for the most part, shooting them dead. Yeah, where where I think that's, um, you know, those statistics are, you know, unarguable. Um, Where I think that is missing the point a little bit in this uh, Ferguson discussion is that that's not what people are angry and rioting about at the moment. No, Um, no. I mean, he can make the point that people should be angry and uh, and rioting and demanding action on that sort of thing, mm. um, but it's not what people are. It's not what this issue is about. Yeah, I mean, he's just calling into question the entire premise for yeah. the current discussion that dominates, and he's saying that actually the discussion should be of a different thing, which is uh, violence in the black community. Um, and he also made the good point. As a guy who reduced crime an enormous amount in New York City, he Giuliani really heralded the beginning of a new sort of age of safety in New York City. And the way he did that was just by pouring police into the streets based on the statistics of crime in certain areas. And the sort of effect of that or the outcome of that approach was that black areas or predominantly black neighbourhoods were flooded with cops. And there are all these attendant problems with that. Um, But, you know, Giuliani, to my mind, makes a good point in a terrible way. Um, And he has a kind of a talent for that, I've found. 
he's obviously not an idiot, but he really is. I mean, he, I think he even used the phrase, you people, yeah. when he was talking <laughs> to the black guy about this, who was obviously unhappy with what he was saying. Anyway, we'll put a link in the notes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, next topic. Just one final, oh, sorry. One final yeah. point. Just um, I think just to, just to sum up something about the you know, the grand jury process and something which I saw all over social media uh, on the um, on the day that the, the grand jury decided that, um, you know, Wilson uh, didn't have a, a case to answer and didn't have to go to trial, was that all these people saying, what are you talking about? A jury has found him innocent. A jury's found him innocent. He's not guilty. Um, if you're one of those people, you're a fucking moron. That's not what a grand jury does. <laughs> only a uh, only a separate trial with a jury can find him uh, not guilty or innocent. The grand jury was just supposed to see if there was enough evidence for it to go to trial. Yeah, yeah. The simple fact is they considered that, and there clearly was. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems to be the case. Yeah. All right, mate. So foreign fighters with ISIS. Yes. So just to very quickly summarise the facts on this, because there's not much to it. There are many people who are joining the YPJ, which is a Kurdish militia that's based in Western um, Western uh, Kurdistan, i.e. the Kurdish northern area of Iraq and, and Syria Turkey. and southern Turkey. Isn't uh, doesn't isn't that part of what's uh, a separate mm, issue? How you know the PKK. So they're different to the YPJ. Okay. So the YPJ is a kind of a militia, for, it's a Kurdish militia. The PKK are a resistance movement against the Turks, and that has died down over the last few years. Um, but there's a relationship between the PKK and the YPJ. So people... Well, they all want Kurdistan. They do. Yeah. In so, yeah, they are unified in that respect. But the YPJ is not interested in resisting Turkey, Fair enough. basically. So Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. We are getting sidetracked <laughs> in the details of the acronyms. So there are a lot of uh, Westerners who want to fight against ISIS who are joining the YPJ in Syria and Kurdistan, so in Syria and Iraq. And, and I thought we will link in the show notes to the article, the newspaper article about this. I think it's actually a really interesting phenomenon where... It's akin to the Spanish Civil War foreign brigades yeah. um, in the 30s where volunteer fighters joined the left-leaning government who were fighting against General Franco in his attempted overthrow of that democratically elected government in Spain. Um, and it's this idea of basically violent activism. Yeah, And Western governments have basically in an in as many words, drawn a distinction between people who go and fight for ISIL yeah. and people who go and fight for the YPJ. Although there are potential problems because the YPJ has links with the PKK, which is a terrorist group. Yeah, and I mean, that's uh, something that I was thinking about. I didn't know the uh, the strict, um, you know, uh, differentiation between, you know, Kurdish militia, militia who are uh, strictly anti-Turkey as opposed to these ones who are fighting uh, There's ISIL. definitely blur. Um, there is blur. Um, and so that was something I was uh, I was thinking about when I when I first uh, read this story was um, uh, say Australia at the moment is trying to introduce legislation uh, you know against people going and join and joining uh, for, you know fighting for foreign organizations and it's clearly aimed at stopping people going and 
fighting mm. uh, for, for ISIS, mm. uh, ISIL, whatever. Um, fuck stains, let's call them fuck stains. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, how that legislation would work for people who wanted to go and find against, uh, fight against the fuck stains. Yeah. Um, but if they were, say, if they were fighting for, you know, these Kurdish interests and ended up, you know, uh, killing some Turkish soldiers in a uh, in a battle that you know for for the other for uh, for another Kurdish in, uh, interest. Um, what sort of uh, what sort of liability would Australia be under if? Um, That's if an interesting point, and I think one of the other interesting factors at play here is that Turkey is definitely not the Western flavour of the month yeah. in the sense that they are well seemingly avoiding their responsibility and pushing back against ISIL and essentially becoming a conduit for many of the foreign fighters joining ISIL to get into the areas yeah. that are, um, that are uh, areas of fighting in this war. So, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things here is that, you know, there's obviously no problem if you're a citizen of Australia going and fighting, for instance, in the Israeli military. Um, a friend of mine... Um, an Australian citizen is actually in the Israeli military at the moment. And, you know, he's not going to get charged under any of the statutes that they bring into force. No. But it's going to be a fine line for them to walk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one way to distinguish perhaps would be just you can fight for nation states, foreign nation states. Yeah. But then you but then end that's up not... in weird situations where Iranian Australian citizens... You also wouldn't be able to go and fight for the Kurds in that instance. That's true, absolutely. Although, or fight with the Kurds. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult for them. But what do you think... So you've got people who are completely unconnected yeah. or disconnected from this... They have no Kurdish ancestry. Yeah. There's I no mean, they're, reason... They're random people from uh, from England and Europe and... Australia. Australia. Yeah. Uh, you know, Germany and Netherlands. Uh, 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 you know, Many of them ex-military. Yeah. And United States citizens also. Yeah. And there's actually a, a kind of a Facebook recruitment page for Christ's sake. Yeah, the Lions of Rojava, if that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah. So, I mean, you'll be able to have a look at that from the show notes if you want to. But, I mean, what do you think of this idea? Uh... I mean, at the end of the day, if it's something that someone wants to do, um, I'm not going to stop them. Um, and I think just the the outrage that uh, Fuckstein's actions have caused, mm. um, you know, the beheadings of, uh, of journalists and that kind of thing, um, and the... Uh, well, I've already said it. The, you know, the, the sheer outrage that people had over that, and people wanted to do something. A, a mate, an American mate of mine, um, uh, who's uh, you know quite a peaceful bloke, really. Um, but he was uh, he was so incredibly outraged um, over over the beheading of uh, of one of the journalists uh, whose name escapes me right now. It's terrible. Um, but um, and he was just like, I just want to do something. Um, and he was trying to work out what the hell he could do about it. Um, and I can certainly see that if someone had uh, a military background and was feeling like feeling that way, um, fuck it, I'll go and sign up and uh, and try and kill some of these foxtones. Um, mm. I don't see... I mean, I personally am not a fan of military conflict. No. I am 
not sold on the fact that we really should be involved with this at all as a country. Yeah. And to my mind... I would agree with you on that. Uh, yeah, we've had extensive yes. conversations to that effect. But the idea, I suppose, morally or ethically of going and joining a group like the YPJ that are defending themselves against clearly an abhorrent aggressor. Yeah. I see no reason why you should have a kind of a blood tie to be justified in doing that. I mean, I'm not a big believer in nation-state boundaries. They are just lines on a map. Completely arbitrary. Patches of dirt. Yeah. And if you feel passionately about a a cause, um, I see no reason why it's an inferior reason to go and fight than just joining the army of a nation yeah, state. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't have any problem at all with uh, these lions of Rojava signing up and fighting for, for this uh, you know, cause if they really believe in it and are sort of outraged by fuck stains and, um, and want to do something about it. Uh, I'm also very uh, aware of the fact that there are probably uh, very many people um, in the uh, in the Islamic world right now who you know might well be thinking, oh, I don't have any problem with people who want to go and sign up and fight for a, for ISIL. Um, mm. uh, you know, I'm an Indonesian archer uh, on the other side of the world, and I've heard about a a friend of a friend who wants to go and fight for ISIL because they might be the new uh, caliphate, uh, and I don't have a problem with that. There are probably people who are thinking that too. Um, yeah, it's an interesting idea, though, that you can end up with these multinational forces because of, I suppose, the ease of communication and movement yeah. in the 21st century. If people could pull it off in the mid-20th, yeah. there's no reason why they can't now. And I suppose the motivations of these people is what interests me. I actually think it would be very interesting to interview them and ask them why they're doing what they're doing. Because there's always self-interest in this kind of thing. Yeah. And so what is it that actually drives people here? I uh, don't have an answer to that, but just on the self-interest and interviews uh, thing just made me think of something. How long do you think it's going to be with uh, this sort of, um, what did you call it, uh, violent ex- violent activism or yeah, uh, that sort of thing? And in this particular case with the Kurds in, uh, in northern Iraq um, and, uh, and Syria, how long do you give it? linking back to the 30s and uh, Spanish Civil War before someone tries to do a Hemingway, before a writer or journalist... Uh, That's an interesting... Thinks, uh, who, so you're uh, talking about the writing. Yeah. Who or an Orwell, up, indeed. Yeah. Um, who rocks up there um, just for a story, mainly. They might well believe in the cause as well, but they're there to... Uh, mm. I don't think that'll take long. No. I think that's inevitable, almost. Uh that's an interesting point. And I suppose if you think that there's something to add to the human experience of war literature, mm. uh, by all means. But it seems to me that the ground is quite well covered. Yeah. It's shitty. No one is enjoying themselves. Every now and again, there are moments of ecstasy born of pure sort of <laughs> id channeling and survival instinct. But for the most part, it's not how you want to spend your spare time. Oh, I forgot brotherhood. Yeah. Yes. It's all about brotherhood. I think you've, yeah, I think you've 
pretty much summed up all you know the, yeah uh, the, the the wartime literature experience of the past uh, few hundred years in, i wonder uh, in if 20 seconds would there be anything novel about this though hmm. i can't think of anything but i guarantee that someone's going to give it a go and soon yeah um, yeah um so that's that's a really interesting point actually i think you're right there's probably someone already there yeah. taking notes um and the question is really, well, what can come out of that that makes a positive difference in the world? We're already overwhelmed with tragic stories from different parts of the world. Uh, and this is just another. But I suppose, well, people don't have to justify why they do what they do to me. Yeah. It makes perfect sense that this is um, just a, another way to spend your uh, free time if you so desire. So, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that? I think I've, um, yeah, no, I've I think, said my lot. I think I've said my lot as well. All right. Well, it looks like that's the end of the podcast. Radio. Good citizens, let me remind you that we have an email address. It's mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. Just to repeat that, mail at patandrodsavetheworld.com. Pat and